dynamic diversity Bringing us together like we're supposed to be Dynamic magazine We're all different but we can learn from each other Dynamic Diversity Unfiltered. Dynamic Leaders for a Changing World Magazine's premier podcast. We bring you the voices of today's renowned societal leaders and average folks talking about what they do, how they got there, and what they're thinking about in the controversial world of diversity, inclusion, and race relations. In this episode, making sure that a gay officer received the same exact benefits, the recognition of their partner at the time because again there was no gay marriage in New York City at the time. We talked to Vivian Rodriguez who reveals her mission in life and how she helped improve LGBT relations in the New York police force. A career law enforcement officer, Vivian Rodriguez is a native New Yorker who served for 21 years on the NYPD in riot training, the narcotics division, and doing undercover work but she's also a passionate and committed advocate for LGBT rights and shares her journey with Dynamic. Can you please tell your, our readers about your early life? What was it like for you growing up? Well, um, I was born in uh, Manhattan and uh, at a young age, I would say around eight years old, I uh, we moved, the family moved to uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we had purchased a house in the suburbs. And I grew up in uh, Brooklyn. And then as I got older and uh, I went into law enforcement, became an adult and became a police officer, um, I ended up uh, moving to Staten Island, New York. And that was my last stop. And that's where you live now? No, actually, um, I retired as a law enforcement officer. I served 21 years with the NYPD. Mm -hmm. And um, um, in 2004, August of 2004, when I retired, I relocated to Orlando, Florida. Oh. I have to laugh because a lot of New Yorkers do that. (laughs) Yes, uh, a lot of New Yorkers moved to the Sunshine State. Florida for many reasons. They got tired of the snow. (laughs) Yes, that's that's one way of putting it. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So was was there something or someone in your childhood that influenced you to become a police officer? Well, actually, um, funny that you should say that. Um, I became a police officer only because at the time, I became an officer in 1983. July of 1983, and at the time, they were not only paying you a a very good salary, but they also paid for your college education. So that was a real incentive of becoming a police officer because of the salary and also providing for college education. Educational benefit, yeah. Mm -hmm. They're not doing that anymore? No, um, they've really uh, cut down on that. So uh, now there's different rules and regulations. Oh, it's too bad. 
Well, you said that you served for 21 years on the force. What was it like in the early years compared to your departure? What kinds of difficulties or challenges did you encounter? Well, um, when you first become a police officer, you're a rookie, and you have to go first through the police academy, and that's uh, for several months, six months. And once you graduate from the police academy, you get assigned to a neighborhood at the time was called the Neighborhood Stabilization Unit. And uh, you would learn uh, the beat with the senior uh, STU officers, and they would show you, uh, plus, you know, you're working with peers that just graduated with you. So you walk the beat, and um, you have senior officers teaching you. Um, you know, the do's and don'ts of being a police officer. And then you get assigned to a precinct. So um, I was assigned in the 7-8 precinct, which was downtown Brooklyn, uh, the Park Slope area, uh, Prospect Park, actually. And uh, from there, um, I did uh, patrols for a couple of years. And then I went to a mobilization unit. and um, once I was there, I learned about riot training and civil disobedience. And from there, I wanted to become a New York City detective, and you have to go into an investigative type of assignment. So I had the opportunity to go into the narcotics division, which I did. And um, I went in as an undercover officer, and I was an undercover officer for six months. And I purchased all type of drugs on the, you know, being a UC, as they say, undercover. So I was in Alphabet City. I had purchased cocaine and heroin as an undercover officer, marijuana, uh, you name it, crack cocaine. And um, that really wasn't, you know, what I really wanted to do because I always used to love to do the arrest processing part. So I decided to roll over and become an investigator, which the investigator actually interacts uh, with the criminals and then the ones who do the arrest processing. And uh, I preferred that and do the search warrants. So um, once I became an investigator, I was in narcotics for like three and a half years before I became a third grade detective because they're different. Um, the statuses of the detectives. Uh, when you first become a detective, you're automatically a third grade detective. And then every every other category, second and first, first is the highest you can attain. That's by um, recommendation of your immediate supervisor, and then it has to go before a committee, and it eventually goes to the police commissioner. And then they will decide, um, you know, the police commissioner will have the final decision of uh, if you will get promoted to the next status. Mm-hmm. So um, that was um, what I wanted to set my goals for was to actually become a first grade detective because you could either go up the detective track or become a supervisor and rise up the ranks. But I, I was always very inquisitive. I used to love to find the pieces to the puzzle and, and that's what I wanted to do. So I just set my goals for that and um, as I was in the narcotics division, I uh, went to the public morals division. And that was because, I don't know if you're familiar with New York, but 
while I was in the narcotics division, there was a fire. It was called the Happy Land Fire down in, I believe it was in the Bronx. Where it was a, it was a, it was a after-hours nightclub. Okay. And what happened was that all the exits uh, were not, uh, they were covered, and a lot of people in the after-hours nightclub had perished inside because there was a fire. Oh. So they put together a uh, a new unit, a new mobilization-type unit where. It was called the, uh, let's see if I can remember now, but there was, it was called um, the after hours. It, it was a special unit just to go and visit these nightclubs that existed just to make sure that, um, you know, that they were not, um, that they were, you know, they, that they were following the proper, um, you know, right policies uh, for, from the New York City nightlife and, and if they, you know, if they were after-hour clubs that weren't supposed to be existing, uh, we would go in and shut them down, or make sure that, you know, all the clubs that were operating in the New York City area that they abide by all the rules and regulations from the New York City, uh, you know, nightclub or any type of, um, you know, anything that would prevent any type of deaths or, you know, any type of um, public health issues. Gotcha. So um, I I did that for a year, and from there I went to the public morals uh, division, which is also now called the vice squad. Um, uh-huh. More people know what to be at the vice squad. Yeah. And I did a couple of assignments there where uh, we did a lot of the cases with the organized crime families. Um, we also uh, I got to dress up like a prostitute. We had a, an operation <laughs> called Operation John, and I would go down to uh, Manhattan in the like 11th, 12th Avenue, the 30, 30th Street, 34th Street, where the prostitutes would be, and uh, we would have our own police operations and arrest all the individuals that would try to uh, interact with the prostitutes and make their you know uh, propositions. So. I did that as well in vice squad. That must have been and, interesting. Oh, it was. And <laughs> um, so I did uh, public morals. And then from there, uh, I had the opportunity at the time they had the mayor's race. And um, I had the opportunity to get assigned uh, when Rudolph Giuliani became the mayor. I became part of his executive protection team, oh. and um, I was uh, I was um, protecting his daughter, who at the time was a, a youngster. I think she was maybe four years old at the time. Oh wow! And um, so I was assigned to that protective unit. Right. Um, I also, yeah. So that's how um, I was with the mayor's detail. But I also was in the intelligence division for a couple of years, and I, I did various assignments where we did some briefings for uh, the protective intelligence side. Um, I was there for 9-11, too, for the intelligence division, and um, I was part of a new innovative uh, unit called the Liaison Unit, uh, once 9-11 had occurred, uh, being that I was in the intelligence division, I did a lot of the more of the covert type of operations 
in Manhattan, uh, securing certain things and also securing uh, New York City because uh, we wanted to make sure that no other terrorist attacks would occur in the city. So we have various operations that were ongoing uh, to make sure that um, none of the um, landmarks or transportation hubs or anything that a potential cell could be actually surveillancing uh, to harm New York City. To, you know, was that after, after, after 9-11? Yes. Um, I was working during 9-11 too, though. So just to give you a, a little story, the night before 9-11, um, I was assigned to an intelligence, selective intelligence unit where um, I had gotten a memo from the State Department. We were reading different memos, and it had said that Al-Qaeda was looking to attack, you know, the, the United States, but everybody, mostly in the intelligence community, thought that it would be abroad because it was always, you know, embassies that they would attack. If, if you remember, Al-Qaeda had attacked in, uh, in the 90s uh, in Africa, uh, two embassies in Africa in Kenya, and um, people just felt that they would never have the, you know, the capability of ever attacking within the United States, but they did prove us wrong on 9-11. Yeah, they did. So the following day, um, I woke up, and um, I was doing a 10 to 6, so someone had called me, you know, watch, look at the TV, you know, a plane hit a tower. So when I put the TV on and I saw that, I knew right away that they were, we were on attack, that yeah. they were attacking. And then I saw the second plane hit and I was like, oh my God, this this is unbelievable, it's happening. Yeah. So I raced, I raced back to, uh, you know, our building, the intelligence uh, building. And my job for that day was to find out, you know, who did it why, and, you know, all the information, general information, and were there any more imminent attacks that were going to occur? Because remember, you had the Pentagon that was attacked, you had the other plane that went down yeah. uh, in Philadelphia, but that was supposed to go to another target in Washington, D.C., so that we were all working, I mean, tremendously with, with other intelligence uh, agencies, you know, police departments and coordinating and talking to each other to see what was going on and trying to get as much information as we could. Mm-hmm. So, so um, you were a first responder then? Yes, but not on that first day. The first day I was gathering intelligence. We were trying to get as much information as we could because we were trying to prevent another attack from occurring because at that yeah. time, no one knew what was happening. So the police department in New York City at the time, we were 40,000 strong, so uh, you had some people who were down in ground zero, you know, while it was happening, and then you had others that were held back to gather all the data and the information because we wanted to prevent any other attacks mm-hmm. that could have been happening. So um, I was back in the building the day of um, working with others uh, trying to figure out what else was going to happen. The following day, I did go down to ground zero, and um, it was very eerie, especially um, when I was going down with the vehicle, you know, the patrol car, and I went through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, 
I don't know if you're familiar with New York. I am. I lived there for three years. Okay, so when you go through the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the towers were right there. So as I was going through the tunnel, I, I could see I was getting an anxiety attack because the tunnel was, it had that white cloudy smoke. And, yeah, yeah and everything was gray. And, yeah, and when I got to the other side, what I saw was not even, you know, a little half of the structure still standing with all the smoke and everything. And then um, I was down in ground zero for a couple of months doing, as I said, various assignments um, that... Um, that were more co- covert. Um, you know, everybody had different assignments there. Some yeah. were the cleanup, cleanup, and and, and and recovery. You know, with bodies. Yeah. And, and everybody had different assignments. And yeah. My my assignment was more of uh, protecting the city from any other imminent attacks. Um, I was also part of. Um, in the intelligence division, I was also part of the, besides the executive protection team, when I was assigned with Mayor Giuliani, I also was assigned to all the heads of states when they would come into New York City, especially during uh, the UN Assembly. Mm-hmm. Um, I would uh, be assigned to various countries to protect the Secret Service or the State Department, depending on who it was. And I was also uh, with the presidential motorcades when they would come in. So uh, back in the early 90s, uh, when the president was Bill Clinton and the first lady was Hillary Clinton, I was assigned various times to her detail and she would come into New York as the first lady. And I would work with her Secret Service team as the Intel NYPD officer. Mm. So I got to know her and see her then in the 90s. Nice. And, um, you know, I did various assignments with, uh, as I said, with the um, dignitary protection side as well. So uh, going back to 9-11, um, I did various operations. There was two operations that I could tell you about. We had Operation Hercules and Operation Nexus. Operation Hercules was a motorcade where um, we would have uh, several assigned um, specific um, uh, units, and we would travel like in a motorcade, and we would stop at certain transportation hubs or or landmarks, areas where um, a, a cell could be a terrorist cell could be surveillancing or recon. And I, as an intel office officer, we would all go together. We would have highway canine. Um, emergency service, intelligence, and we would get to the spot and we would all jump out of the cars. If you were in New York during that time, um, in the beginning, New Yorkers were like frightened when they used to see us come because <laughs> we uh-huh. would jump out of the vehicles and the whole idea was to, if anybody was doing any type of surveillance, um, you know, they would get startled and they, they would know we were there. So it was more for a presence factor uh-huh. and for gathering intelligence and and identifying individuals. And, um, you know, there, there were certain incidents when I went to certain areas. And, um, you know, uh, we've managed to keep the city safe, as you can see. It has not really been a repeat. And any other um, cells that were there, we managed to uncover, you know, the intelligence uh, division, as well as the FBI uh, JTT, 
we had the JTTF, the Joint Terrorism Task Force. We all used to work together in some way. So um, I pretty much did that uh, towards the end of my career. Okay. And uh, with the liaison unit, um, my, well, most of my functions was with the liaison unit, we had New York City detectives dispatched around the world for real-time intelligence mm-hmm. so that after 9-11, it was important to find out if there was a nexus to any terrorist attack that had happened abroad and if there was going to be something imminent here in New York City. So, for example, um, with the Madrid bombings, if when the, when the Madrid bombings occurred, I was able to contact uh, my network's my foreign networks and try to get as much information as I could because we would have a team dispatch to that location that were assigned from either, let's say, Lyon, France or Israel or wherever the the detectives might be assigned, they would be notified to go to that location to find out that information and work with the people on the ground there, you know, just to try to get as much information because the information that we would get, we can apply it to New York City to make sure that uh, we can protect New York City and just try to find out the MO, you know, what was the, the, the motive, what was what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, how that worked was uh, the first New Year's after nine that the incident had happened. Um, do you remember uh, the incident where they had um, arrested an individual who was trying to cross from the Canadian border into uh, into the United States, and they were going to be um, actually looking at the Seattle needle in Seattle that they were going to attack over there? I don't remember do that remember specifically, that? but... Yeah, that was in... The, that year and um, 2001 yes and I believe it was 2001 right after 9-11 that New Year's um, and you could uh, Google it um, there was this gentleman who was trying to cross over from Canada into the United States and he was stopped by inspections you know the uh, customs inspections team there and um, he was acting suspicious and they had stopped him and when they looked and they further questioned and then he started to run and they checked the vehicle because they saw that there was like some substances in the trunk that didn't, at first they thought it was probably drugs. <laughs> but what it ended up happening was that he actually had a component to make a bomb. Wow. So anyway, that, that initiated that information that was initiated you know, an investigation in New York, because when they do these investigations, especially with cell phones and everything, we get information, and it happened to be that he was in contact with a person who had lived in Brooklyn, New York. So for that New Year's, we were all on high alert, everybody, every agency that you could think of that worked in New York, from FBI, I mean, everyone. Because um, that's, by finding out that information, there was a nexus that one of the people that he was talking to was a New York City resident. Yeah. So we were all on high alert. And that was like the emphasis of why these units worked the way they did, like the liaison unit. It was to gather information to try to stop any imminent attacks. 
from occurring again in in you know New York City. Mm-hmm. So um, I did that type of work. We had Operation Nexus. Uh, Nexus was we would go to uh, businesses, like for example, businesses that could um, where terrorists can go and 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 get products or try to hide or get information to try to put together a terrorist attack. For example, um, they would go to storage, like some of these cells, um, they would put some of their um, products into a storage facility. So we would go to storage facilities if there was anything strange or anything that um, they thought, you know, there was any odors coming out of a certain storage facility or they, um, they saw strange people, you know, coming in in odd hours, you know, things like that, we would tell them to report. Mm-hmm. That's what Operation Nexus was. Basically learning mm-hmm. businesses to let us know if there was anything strange going on. And then we would further investigate. So then it was time to retire. So on my 20th year, when I was with Mayor Giuliani, uh, I was two years with Mayor Giuliani before I got my second grade. So I got promoted to second grade detective while working on the Rudy Giuliani assignment. Then on uh, my 20th year, when I was working uh, with the intelligence division with the liaison unit, that was after 9-11, they gave me first grade, they promoted me to first grade detective. So I stayed uh, an extra year to 21 years and then I retired. And uh, as I retired, um, because of my background in intelligence and networking, um, I was asked to be part of a program, a new initiative with the Department of Homeland Security, which is called the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center out of uh, Glencoe, Georgia. And they asked me just to be part of a new initiative where uh, they wanted to build a program called the Anti-Terrorism Intelligence Training Program to offer uh, other officers, state and local police departments, all information regarding uh, indicators of intelligence and, and, and terrorism so that they can have the opportunity to learn about all these type of indicators and, and they, so they could be better prepared in their departments because unlike uh, the NYPD or LAPD, you have major police departments that have extensive training and most of your police departments are smaller, maybe 25 or even smaller than that. And uh, they don't get the same type of training sometimes, unfortunately, that the larger departments would get. So it was just like an extra um, an extra uh, training that was given by the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center and it was delivered around the whole nation. So I became part of that program as an instructor and trainer. And also, um, I also was part of putting and developing the PowerPoint presentations and putting together some of the slides and information. So um, that's what I did once I retired. And I did that all the way up to 2011. And then after 2011, after doing the extensive training, I uh, became involved in politics. And, and that was now, my, that's my next question, as a matter of fact. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I see that you've been chairperson, president, and many other positions in public organizations. How did you first become involved in this type of service? Well, when I was um, in the NYPD, I was always an advocate for civil rights, you know, for both the Latino and LGBT community. Uh, that was a passion of mine as a public servant, that um, I wanted to make sure that, you know, everyone was treated fairly and equally. So I was part of two fraternal organizations in the NYPD. One was the uh, Hispanic Society, which I was on the board, and that was basically to empower the Latino community within the law enforcement community. Um, then we also had, um, on my final year, in 2004, I became the president of the Gay Officers Action League, and I was an advocate on LGBT, you know, rights with police officers. If you look at both organizations, it was an, an advocacy group to make sure that, you know, um, we celebrated cultural pride with the Hispanic uh, community or with the LGBT community. We wanted to make sure that um, they, they got the deserved promotions, that there was no discrimination. We did a lot of different things. And um, that's that was my passion. And I got involved in, in New York City with various um, elected officials and community leaders to make sure that both communities were being, you know, treated fairly and equally. And um, because of also my experience with 9-11, when I was the president of the Gay Office, that's actually I realized that if a gay officer was killed in the line of duty, whether it was 9-11 or in a shooting, because marriage equality was not uh, in New York City at the time, you know, it was not the law of the land yet, and it definitely was not, uh, you know, it was not in place in New York City, I knew that there had to be something in order to recognize uh, the partner of a gay officer, because it, it wouldn't be right for you know, a gay officer to die in the line of duty, and yet their partner could not be recognized. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to change that. If they had children, I wanted to make sure that the children were recognized and they got benefits. So as the president at the time of the Gay Officers Action League, that was one of my main, uh, you know, uh, advocate, one of my main concerns of, of advocacy was to make sure that if a gay officer died on the line of duty, that their partner would receive the same dignity and respect as a, as the as a you know uh, officer's wife would receive, and wow. um, worked with several um, elected officials on with that. At the time, we had uh, uh, William Thompson, who was the controller, and I worked with one of uh, the openly. Well, he was one of the first and openly gay state senators in New York City. And um, I went and I testified up in, in, in Albany, and we did a lot of work on that because that was one of my passions, just to make sure that gay officers received the same treatment as a straight officer's wife would have gotten the benefits. Good for you. So I did that work, and um, I've always been an advocate for you know civil rights. So when I became involved, when I retired, and I became involved with the um, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center, I basically focused just on the law enforcement aspect of helping others to try to stop, you know, any terrorist action or just bringing an awareness. So I did that 
as I said, till 2011, but I was on an actual flight, you know, going to upstate New York to teach in that counterterrorism center up there. And I was sitting next to this woman and we struck up a conversation and it happened to be that she was a fellow New Yorker who had retired in Florida and she was involved in politics and she was involved in a women's group called Ruthless. So she said, you know what, being a fellow New Yorker, being that you've been so active and you have a passion and, you know, you're in law enforcement, you've done so much. She says, you just can't come to Florida and not get, you know, politically involved. She says, you have to, you know, join our group. You have to uh, at least come and visit us. So I would say like a year later, um, I took her offer to come to a meeting. And at the time it was, uh, it was a Hispanic Heritage Month. And they were supposed to have three women speakers. Uh, one did not show, and they asked me to speak. And I knew no one in the in the room because the only person I knew was the person that I had met on that flight <laughs> who had invited me. So she asked me to, you know, if I wouldn't mind uh, stepping in and, and just talking about, you know, myself. Because I asked her, what are we going to talk about? She says, well, just talk about, you know, what you've done, your career, and then we'll ask a couple of questions. And I said, okay, why not? I'll wing it. And uh, that following week, I got a phone call if I wanted to run for office. And I had to climb that. I I didn't want to run for office, you know, because I've always been a person in the background. I love, you know, helping people and seeing other people, you know, live their dreams. You know, that was not for me an option to run for elected office. But anyway, I did want to um, see how I can offer, you know, my assistance because I've always been a public servant. So I decided to join the local party. And through the local party, I helped out with Hispanic outreach. And then I became the vice chair of the local Democratic Party. And um, from there, um, there was the Hispanic Caucus which is the Hispanic Caucus of Florida, which basically advocates for Latinos. And um, there was an opportunity for me to run because, and it was it was funny the way that I ran, because I had no intentions of running for the president of that organization. I was just like a member, just trying to get involved and help with the community. And um, they were supposed to have an election, and uh, it was canceled. And... It was held two months later, and two people from five people, only two people ended up running for the president's spot. And uh, various people called me and said, listen, Vivian, we want you to run for that position. I know you had no intention of running, but we feel that you would be a great leader for this organization and to rebuild it. So um, would you consider? So I said, listen. This is like not even three or four days before the actual election. I've never, you know, campaigned. I've never done anything because I never was running. (laughs) So they said, let's do this. So I said, okay. I said, chances are we're not going to win because these other individuals have been campaigning for a while already, you know, for more than a year. I said, but if we can make a difference, at least if we can garner enough votes that the other person sees that, you know, if they win, they have to pay attention to these individuals that voted against them. You know, maybe we can make a difference. So on election day, I was nominated on the floor. And uh, it was myself and one other person. And after we spoke and we, you know, gave our speeches, uh, lots of people came out who believed in me and wanted me to run and, and actually wanted me to win. 
And sure enough, after we gave our speeches, uh, they counted the votes, and I actually won the election. I was in shock. Wow. (laughs) Yes, and I became the president for the State Democratic Hispanic Caucus, and my job is to mobilize Latinos throughout the state of Florida, make sure that they come out and vote, make sure that we empower our community by um, what I do is I try to identify talent to run for office in the state of Florida because we have such a high uh, population of Latinos, but yet it doesn't reflect the seats in elected office. So I've done a lot of different programs since I became the president. Um, We put a lobby days event every year where we go up and we lobby with the state legislators for bills and pieces of legislation that will help the Hispanic community and anything that's negative, we will try to lobby against that. So that was one of the programs that we put together and we have several members that go up and they love it because we engage with the state legislators and we're making a difference. Another program we put together was the gala. We wanted Democrats of all different backgrounds to see who we were, to bring cultural pride so they could learn and and understand what Hispanics, you know, who are Latinos, who are Hispanics. And we put together a gala, which we just had last week, where we bring in um, artists and musicians and leaders, national leaders from, you know, around the nation. We just had Congressman Joaquin Castro. He was here for our first gala, and he was here for our last gala, which was last um, week. And we bring noted speakers, and that's to inspire, you know, our Latinos in the state of Florida and others on the importance of voting. We have a program that we put together because I saw that there was a lack of um, Hispanic leaders coming forward to run for office, and a lot of them just had questions on, you know, how how do we put a campaign together? How do we know we're a viable candidate? So I brought in a team to make sure that um, we filled that void in by putting together a training program, you know, for for Latinos. And everyone's invited to come, but it's specific, you know, for Latinos because we know we know that uh, they needed to get some type of guidance on how to run a campaign, what it costs to to run a campaign what it is to fundraise, how do you know you're a viable candidate? I mean, we, we teach them everything in this course, and that was never done before. We have a youth program. I, I identified certain millennials to go to certain universities and try to get out the youth the Latino vote. I mean, we've done so many different things that these programs never existed before. And the whole idea is to empower the Hispanic community. And since I've always done this all my life, even as a police officer, to being the president of the Gay Officers Action League and with the Hispanic Society, it's just in my blood, as they said. It's my passion. And um, I will always continue to do that because that's who I am. Awesome. Well, as president of the Gay Officers Action League, what would you say were the league's accomplishments during your presidency? The what accomplishments? The, the Gay Officers Action League's accomplishments. Uh-huh. What were what were their accomplishments during your pre- presidency? Well, um, making sure that, as I said, uh, that was one of the most important things was making sure that a gay officer received the same exact benefits, the recognition of their partner at the time, because again, there was no gay marriage in New York City at the time. 
so that I wanted to make sure that there was policies in place to to for the police department to acknowledge, you know, uh, a gay officer's partner, and that they would receive the same rights and dignity as as a fallen police officer. Married person. person. Right. Right. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, um, another thing that I thought was very important that the Gay Officers Action League uh, had, we had a program that we won in a lawsuit years before, because uh, that was another thing. Um, the Gay Officers Action League, as well as the Hispanic Caucus, we had attorneys, uh, which we, we would try to work within the police department, you know, if there was something that we thought could be worked at better, or, you know, there were certain ways of... Um, trying to rectify certain situations. But years before I was president, there was a lawsuit with the NYPD. And in that lawsuit, uh, the, the gay officers actually actually won the right to uh, train all the incoming police cadets on LGBT sensitivity training. And till this day, the gay officers actually still does that with all incoming police cadets. And what we do is we get them for a week and we train them on uh, vocabulary, sensitivity, and what what's the proper verbiage, you know, definitions, what to say, what not to say. And then we have them in, 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 the, in an auditorium and we pick, uh, let's say, like two or four of them. And what we do is we, we put together actual scenarios, like if you were on the street. So we would ask two officers, let's say, two police cadets to come up on stage, and we have the uh, cop, the gay officer, actually officers, we we are like the actors in the scenario. And then we ask the two rookie, you know, the two police cadets to come up and in front of their peers, answer a police call, like they would really answer it out in the street. So their peers would be in, in the audience, you know, critiquing their actions, and these two police cadets would actually be, you know, in, in the moment, in, in a certain situation, and we're looking to see how they react. So, like, one scenario would be a domestic dispute with two lesbians to mm-hmm. see how they react to that. I mean, we put all these different scenarios, and it's interesting to see them in action and how they interact with us and how their peers are looking at them and they'll tell them, you know, how how they felt, what they did right or wrong. It's really cool. And, you know, it teaches them how to interact with the LGBT community. And I think that's uh-huh. like one of the best things that the NYPD does. And the gay officers actually that is with the NYPD. Uh-huh. They work together and they put this program together. And it's still in use today. Yes. They still awesome. do it today. Awesome. You just answered mm-hmm. my next question. Thank you. <laughs> My next question was all about the LGBT sensitivity training program. <laughs> yes, I know that the NYPD, we, we do an excellent program. And as I said, it's it's a program where it's the uh, Gay Officers Action League and the NYPD, they coordinate together. That's so. awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, since you retired from the police force, you kind of answered this question too, but since you retired from the police force, what have been your new goals? And you did talk about putting together the the uh, Latino groups in Orlando. Well, you know, my my thing has always been I've been an advocate because I am an openly gay Latina. Um, being a woman, 
being openly gay and being a Latina, uh, you can see that, you know, in those three communities, there are certain struggles. Mm-hmm. So being that that's the way I've lived my life and, and knowing the struggles of having um, three minorities, um, I've always wanted others not to have any experiences if they were negative that I had in my life, any struggles. Mm-hmm. So that I want to help others, especially the new generations, have positive experiences that they should not be, you know, discriminated or ostracized just because of who they are or who they love. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody should be treated equally. And Absolutely. as you can see, the transition from back in the 1960s, because there were people before me with the Stonewall riots, and that was yep. another thing. Being an officer, especially when I was the president of the Gay Office of Action League, you know, we marched in uniform, you know, every gay pride in New York City. And oh, that, was most, that was the most, that was the most, I don't even have words for the, the emotions that were running when you have gay officers marching in full uniform from inspectors, you know, that, that would openly come out, people who would openly come out and want to march with us, you know, in their uniforms. So you would see, you know, supervisors as well as detectives, and we would all walk down together in uniform. And when you stop in front of Stonewall for the moment of silence, I mean, that is the most um, uh, emotional. It's, I mean, it still brings tears to my eyes when I think about it. Mm-hmm. Knowing that the Stonewall riots was because of police officers mm-hmm. that attacked the LGBT community. And now you have a, an army of LGBT officers that are there saying, we're here, we're proud, and we will defend you. And we will, you know, make sure that that you will be treated equally and you will be respected and that we will change and make a positive change. You know, it's very emotional. I'm sure. And, you know, to this day, I still get very emotional because it's just such a, a transition, such a change of seeing all the offices and seeing you know, from when the gay office is actually um it 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 um it was created back in nineteen eighty two and knowing that the the small little group of offices that started the gay offices actually everything was secretive and they had to hide and they couldn't say who they were, you know, mm-hmm. because they would be discriminated against. And seeing it evolve from a small little group that used to hide in the basement to when I was president, I had a gala, you know, I had an open gala where we invited everyone to join us from, you know, all the elected officials to, to all the police brass. And we would be out and proud and say, I am a gay officer and I am in the intelligence division. Matter of fact, you know, who knows if others will be in that high position that I was in, but I was on the top of my game when I became the president of the gay officers, actually. I was in one of the, you know, highest, one of the most elite details you could be in the NYPD in the intelligence division, and that's when I became the president. Because I wanted them to know I made it on my own, and now I'm going to come out and say, now I'm going to help others in the gay community within the police department to also be proud and not to be, you know, not to fear that they have to hide behind a closet or 
you know, that that they too, um, you know, they bring they bring something to the table where we are all here. We all work very well together. We're exceptional, you know, human beings that we we you know we we're an asset to the NYPD, and we can make it better. We're one big happy family, and well, you've seen that transition. Mm-hmm. And that actually goes back to my original uh, one of my original questions about how was it in the police force when you first entered versus when you left. Um, how far into being on the force was it that you actually came out? Well, in the beginning, you know, everybody has their time to come out. And um, I think it's much easier now in 2016 because of all the gay rights movement. I mean, um, people before me, gay gay rights leaders before me, opened more doors for people like me to, you know, have the courage to come out even more. But now I would say in 2016, because it's so accepting, you know, there's so many things in place, so many policies in place. I mean, right now we have um, in the police department people who are transgender. You know, um, wow. that's that's something that we have in the NYPD now. So I've seen it grow leaps and bounds. Yeah. Right now there's several officers that are transgender on the job. Where when you look back in the 1980s, as I said, people who were who were gay, a lot of them. Well, you know, a lot of them hid behind the closet. They they right. didn't come out because of, you know, especially the males. If they were in a, because um, males, you know, when you were in 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 the in the in the locker room, you would have to everybody would undress together. So I think for a male officer, a lot of them it was very difficult for them. Um, but that has progressed, you know, from back. In, in the 1980s, early 1980s to 2016, so that it's the department is very open-minded now, you know, more willing, and and you could see that there's you know a lot of cultural pride with all different backgrounds and minorities, not only the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. So that it's it's the atmosphere is more welcoming than ever before. As I said, now you have trans, you know, gender officers on the job. I mean, it's lonely. So the progress has been amazing. And as I said, everybody has, um, you know, before me, after me, everybody has contributed in some way. And it's amazing to see that. Yeah. So going forward, what contributions do you hope to make to the LGBT community as a whole? Well, my contributions is um, equality and justice. Uh, until we see full equality, you know, within this um, world that we live in, um, we will continue to fight that good fight because mm-hmm. even though we have marriage equality, you know, national, that it became the law of the land nationally, we still have struggles within the LGBT community. We have um, discrimination because, remember, there was a severe backlash. When you have progress in one movement, there's going to be others that are going to try to fight that progress. Beat you down. So that, um, for example, the best way to put it is, yeah, we won the fight for marriage equality, but I can, let's say I get married, 
I go to work the, the following day. I put a picture of my wedding, you know, my wedding day. And within the same moment, they can fire me for having a picture. I can be discriminated in housing. I can be discriminated now because if you look at, at the right, what they're trying to do is there's several tactics and strategies that they're putting out there. And everything is based now on religious freedoms. If you go state by state, yeah. you see that the religious right, they're trying to say, well, we have our rights. So they're trying to implement laws and pass laws stating that uh, they have rights too on their religious beliefs. Right. You can, and you can see in some states, some people, if a gay couple is getting married and they go to a bakery and they want the cake to be, you know, uh, yep. cooked by the certain bakery, they could be denied because mm-hmm. they have the right to deny them because they don't believe in that. So there's mm-hmm. still a lot of struggles that we got to fight for. I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it didn't end with marriage equality. There's still so yeah. much more that we have to do. Uh, yeah. People that of color in the LGBT community, uh, you know, the people of color in LGBT community, there's more poverty health issues. There is so much more to battle. Um, and we will continue the battles. And until we reach full equality, you know, which will take some years, um, we'll continue the good fight. And um, that's what I want to see. I want to see progress. I want to see fairness. I want to see justice and equality for all. You and me both. Mm-hmm. So do you have any advice for lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender people who want to be police officers? Um, I I would say that you can be whoever you want to be. You just have to believe in yourself. You have to be proud. And um, every step that you take, you know, as an openly gay officer, um, people will respect you and you will help others to come out and also believe in themselves and know that they can also accomplish their goals. Okay. Well, thank you. This has been a very enlightening interview, and um, I want to thank you for participating and providing uh, all of the insight that you've provided today. Well, thank you for all the work that you do. We appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And remember, you can talk about making a difference, you can take action to make a difference, or you can join Dynamic in doing both. Until next time, stay blessed and be inspired.